0: Hi everybody, this is Charlie, and this is the podcast To Hell and Back. It is Thursday, six o'clock Eastern Time in Massachusetts, and um, this will be the second part of what's going to turn out to be a four-part podcast series on uh, sort of coping uh, during the era of Trump. Uh, I did the first one last week, and uh, this, so this will be number two. Uh, the next, the final two will be next week and the following week, uh, which are the first two Thursdays in March. Um, I have to tell you, I think maybe if you listen to the first one, you might already know this, but um, one of the things that makes this particular podcast complicated for me is that I've spent my career you might say, in the psychological domain, psychological understandings, psychological treatments. And uh, this particular podcast, uh, I just have found it impossible to do it without straying across the border into a political domain. And in fact, they kind of um, go together in this one. And yet, commenting on politics has not been my expertise, so I find my footing is a little unsure and takes me, I really have to deliberately think things through um, to make myself clear. So that'll happen again today, which uh, is is probably the biggest reason why, uh, compared to other podcasts I've done, I'm reading this uh, from a written, some things I've written down rather than extemporaneously talking. So Again, uh, I hope that doesn't create a sense of that it's uh, stilted in some way. Um, okay, I want to start by uh, mentioning and then responding to a couple of uh, emails that I received in response to the first podcast about the era of Trump. and. Uh, and and so the uh, there's one that I'll just tell you what it said. I thought it was interesting, and the other that uh, I want to respond to because I think it's a big deal, uh, and it'll be my segue into today's podcast. Um, and then uh, the reason I've extended it to four, a total of four, is that it'll be take some time will be taken up with this today, and then next week uh, it'll be the following two weeks. They'll be completely at the in the realm of the the practical, borrowing from the playbook of DBT, how to cope with a lot of emotions, thoughts, and other things that come up in response to this era. But I have to make some clarifying comments further today. So one person was concerned and wrote to me, was concerned that by mentioning some of the more dire urges and thoughts um, that I mentioned, that come up in the current environment, when people especially are very angry, uh, that someone might take these comments of mine out of context and land me in some kind of trouble, like like somebody's listening in and I'm gonna be, I'm misunderstood, taken out of context and seen as some kind of a going going beyond the limits of what I should be doing on the, on, on the air, so to speak. I really appreciated that concern and I hadn't really thought about it at all which is probably a little naive on my part. Um, But I think uh, just receiving it reminded me that there is an atmosphere uh, in which people may feel something like that Big Brother is watching or listening. I'm just gonna leave that aside, but I thought it was worth mentioning. The other person shared her perspective about the current political environment and atmosphere in in response to hearing my first podcast. She felt that I may have come across, even though she liked a lot of things I said, as Trump-centric in my explanation of things, my way of formulating the current level of polarization in the United States. I listened back to the podcast myself when I've given this issue a fair amount more thought, and so I want to comment on it. So here goes on that. Since Um, far before the rise of Donald Trump in politics, as others know more expertly than I do. For at least 40 years, we've had an intensely polarized political environment in the country. It manifests in every election cycle. Each side has seriously mistrusted the other side, has blamed the other side for all kinds of things. And bipartisanship has been the exception rather than the rule. It has included a lot of either or type of thinking, black and white kind of thinking, fear of the other side, hatred of the other side, nothing new about this to the Trump era. It was already there. Uh, Two other factors I think have driven the chasm to be wider in recent years than it used to be, other than anything to do with Trump. First has been the rise of technology, cable news, social media, with intense partisanship uh, of from one side to the other, such that each side gets not only entirely different spins on the news, but gets entirely different news. And, and in fact, there are alternative facts, there are alternative news programs that Uh, and I'm sure most of you have watched at different points, different news programs about the same events, and it's just stunning. So how could we not be polarized if people are listening and that's how they get their information? Um, Definitely a contributor to polarization throughout the country. Then the other factor I think has been economic and social, has been written about and talked about by historians. The middle class, as we knew it 50 years ago, When, you know, when I had grown up, or I was still growing up, I guess, if you consider somebody to still be growing up at age 20, but the middle class has taken such a dive with the loss of factories, the loss of civic institutions, the loss of homes, the loss of unions, the loss of influences of churches, and much more. The middle class in which I was raised where my father made a pretty modest income for raising five children, was able to purchase a house and to upgrade to another house later. Uh, And all five children went to college without too much debt. This is a thing of the past. My children, who are about that age now that I was 50 years ago, uh, there's no chance they could do that sort of thing in that way. And these developments, which have happened step by step, sort of slowly but surely, for decades, have left a huge group of people in the center of our economy and society who are more and more disenfranchised, who are struggling to make ends meet, who are frustrated about conditions, and who are wondering who to blame. Meanwhile, during these very same years, these past three decades, let's say. Donald Trump has been, was growing up, or I'd say five decades, receiving huge financial support from his father at first to build his career in real estate where his father had built his. He came from Queens. He started uh, where his father was doing real estate in Brooklyn. And then he made the big leap to Manhattan, trying to preserve what was given to him and to build upon it. He brought a lot of ambition, took major risks with his projects, suffered several bankruptcies, learned from other models and mentors about how to make money in real estate projects, even with people who were very poor as your tenants, had to learn to cope with a lot of these lawsuits that included ones about his aggressive business business practices his racist practices, and his failure to pay contracted employees. He learned over these decades to play hardball. He he could play dirty when necessary, being dishonest when necessary, and building his brand as a strong and successful real estate dealer and a business-based celebrity in New York. He was even known to call talk radio shows in those days and praise Donald Trump without revealing that he was Donald Trump. His brand took shape, his brash personality took shape, and he learned these kinds of skills to claw his way into the spotlight and to recover from some big losses and even turn them into successful books. He was known to weigh in on politics many years ago, and there was a notable point, I say notable to me, I don't know whether it was notable to him. I I thought it was, that's the thing. Yeah, I think it was the 2011 White House Correspondence Dinner, uh, where people, uh, the president and other people spoof the president and other people uh, as part of the dinner. And uh, and And there was a comedian, and then there was Barack Obama, all of whom poked major fun at Donald Trump, who was already a big media figure by then. The camera showed him for a moment just when they had made fun of him and his hair. And I remember thinking, this man is bitterly angry. I, didn't, I knew him a little bit. I didn't know him well, but just seeing his face, just stone face at that moment, you can probably find it on YouTube, but um, he was bitterly angry. I thought and humiliated at being the butt of jokes And I had this thought as I watched even then, I bet he is fantasizing revenge right now. He looked like the kind of person who wouldn't put up with that. Back to the nationwide atmosphere now, circa 2012 to 2016 when there was the election. The electorate, most particularly the disenfranchised middle class who were struggling and were fed up with politics as usual, Washington, as usual. And they were ready for an unconventional candidate for president. You could see that on both sides of the aisle because Hillary Clinton, the conventional Democratic candidate, went through a major challenge that was surprising from Bernie Sanders, who was the unconventional and uh, more challenging and disruptive candidate on the Democratic side. But Hillary Clinton won. Um, and Sa- and and Sanders' uh, base was filled with com- with passion about him. On the Republican side, of something like seventeen candidates, I think it was, or maybe there were more. Trump was clearly the most unconventional one, the most disruptive one. Um, and by the higher ups and the press, uh, were not was not given really a chance to win at the beginning. It seemed that in spite of the unrest, with things as usual. was going to be another battle between a Clinton and a Bush. But the Republicans in the middle of the country and in the middle of the economy and the frustrated and angry disenfranchised people took heart with Donald Trump's candidacy. They saw him do things they could identify with. He was anti-establishment, anti-conventional, a large and colorful personality who spoke off the cuff who thumbed his nose at politics as usual, who stuck his finger in the eye of those who tried to stop him, who disrupted rather than playing nice, and who promised to deliver results for those who had been left behind in our country. It appeared and then became obvious that there was in fact a valence, an opening for someone like him, even though, It seemed improbable. He was a wealthy man who had taken advantage of people with 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 less money and people of color. Someone who had not honored his contracts with workers. Somebody who had hired lots of illegal immigrants for his hotels, which was well known, even though he himself was anti-immigrant, and who didn't know very much about things that politicians usually know a lot about. So he was truly unconventional, and he was willing to play dirty to win. And it came across as a willingness to play dirty, to champion those who had been left behind, those without college degrees and so on. It was an amazingly unpredictable and passionate match between his base and himself, which was unstoppable in 2016. And in this way, the email I received about my comments last week being too Trump-centric, I think was absolutely right. My comments last week were too Trump-centric as an explanation of the polarized environment. Trump came into the middle of that environment. He was able to be a gladiator in that fight, representative of millions of disenfranchised people. It's interesting that many of the patterns of Trump's behavior that have been so hated among people who don't like Trump are exactly the same patterns that have been so loved by people who love him, especially the populace that I'm talking about as the disenfranchised and left behind. For instance, that he openly considered himself and talked about himself as a genius, as a wealthy man, as a large personality, as a very important, large and capable man as if he is striding across the New York stage, and then the national stage, and then on the way to striding across the world stage like some kind of self-appointed colossus, excited his base in the way a super powerful action figure in a movie excites an audience, or a powerful athlete that can take down the opponent excites the fans. He presented himself that way as their champion. And it worked. And at the same time, those on the other side saw him as a self-dealing, self-serving, self-centered, grandiose, beyond realistic measure, and all in all, an obnoxious and dangerous person. When he would disrupt the usual business of politics with his erratic and bold and surprising decisions and positions, His base loved him even more for puncturing conventional politics and government, throwing aside decades, even centuries, of traditions and beliefs supposedly for their sake. They could revel in his disruptiveness and his boldness. They could get behind him, even as we can see people behind him at his rallies on television. And and they saw him as able to pave and then ride the wave to his presidential election. On the other side, his disruptiveness was seen as dangerousness, as lack of respect for our constitution, for our laws, our institutions, our standards of fair play, and even more evidence of his inflated ego and his willingness to to be disrespectful. When Trump made stuff up, During the campaign, and even since then, creating narratives and explanations that glorified him and his decisions and justified him as his decisions, often telling lie after lie without any shame or hesitation. His base saw this as just an ongoing set of small indiscretions in the service of very important business in which he was championing their causes. The other side saw him as a liar, a thief, and a cheater who was completely untrustworthy and only out for his own gain. The disparity between the two points of view on the same behaviors is um, pretty dramatic. When he trashed other politicians and government employees and celebrities of any kind, the way he would demean people, whenever they showed disloyalty or disagreement. His base saw him again as the most powerful gladiator in the ring, clobbering anyone who dared to challenge him, knocking out people who threatened to get in his way. The other side saw him as sadistic, as cruel, devious, without remorse, and all in all as a bad man, not to be trusted, interested only in himself, narcissistic to the extreme with antisocial features and dangerous to the American experiment. Whereas his base has seen him as a willing champion, a disruptor on their behalf, a protector of their lives. And if he has to be rough and crude and make up stuff to get it done, so be it. Now, what I'm pointing to with all of this is a way to understand the Trump phenomenon as a creation of our severely divided country in a social media age with a large disenfranchised population in the middle. His rise is completely understandable. You might even say it is just perfect as it is, even though it still may leave a lot of further damage in its wake. He is a fighter, not a peacemaker. He is a divider, divider, not a uniter. In DBT terms, he is the product and the continuation of a system with dialectical failure, complete polarization of one side with the other, and with the continued absence of a synthesis between the two sides, absence of true bilateral collaboration based on the idea that there is wisdom actually on both sides. In fact, our constitution originally was the product of such a division of polarized opinions synthesized together into one document. What will this do to our future history as a country? And how does the Trump phenomenon echo previous eras in our country? I'm interested in these things, but I'm not qualified to go further into them. I'm gonna steer myself back now across the line into the realm of the more familiar psychological realm to return to the kinds of distress I was talking about last week, the disruptive and frightening experiences that people are having and coping with as this era unfolds, and how we can bring some perspective and some solutions to how people are coping. I hope it is again clear that I would expect there to be as much distress on the right politically as on the left politically and in the center, because the polarization affects us all, disables the whole country to a degree, and will bring different kinds of worries and reactions to different groups of people. So again, I just want to acknowledge, I cannot speak to all the different forms of distress at once, but I'm more familiar from the inside, you might say, and from the people around me with the fear, the dread, the disbelief, the despair, the sadness, the shame, the disempowerment, the catastrophic thinking, the intense urges, the changes in self-concepts that have existed among the never-Trumpers, so to speak. So you can hear, on the one hand, I am passionately not in favor of the continuation of Trump's presidency. I see it not as not just disruptive, but increasingly damaging, as dangerous with respect to climate change, nuclear proliferation, attacks on immigration, and so on. On the other hand, in thinking objectively and dialectically, I see the phenomenon as arising out of identifiable concerns and causes and conditions in history and society which Trump did not create, but in which he has found his place. To place it in a context like that, as a transaction between Trump's history and behavior and personality, on the one hand, and the national environment, on the other hand, helps me to think in a less narrow manner, in a less black and white manner, and to see there is wisdom on both sides, there is reason and justification on both sides, and there is suffering on both sides. While I hold Trump and others with him accountable, in a larger sense, I hold all of us to be accountable for creating a divided nation, a disenfranchised electorate, and we are all accountable for the rise and the election of Donald Trump in one way or another. I don't think he, as a man, could have done this in a different era. The power has been pumped into him by our system and has been protected by Republican leaders of the era of the Congress, for instance, who have all had their own reasons to remain invested in his presidency, even if it isn't his reason, and who if they had acted differently, even in some instances, would never have sustained the Trump momentum that has existed up to today. Trump is not such a great man He is not such a terrible man, but he rides on a wave in our country that poses a threat to our future, and he himself adds to that threat. To study his rise would be an interesting case study, and I'm sure it will be done multiple times, as a transaction or intersection between a divided populace, an era of disenfranchisement, and the dynamics of someone with narcissistic personality disorder antisocial features and charismatic form of talent i do believe that we are all in it together we've created this situation together and we need to find to solve it together over the coming years so now what are the events or triggers you might say of the past 4 years that have aggravated worried frightened and caused such distress in those against trump you know these So please accept my apology in going over some just to make them more concrete and visible. Go get a cup of coffee, a beer, whatever you want, (laughs) take a walk if you don't want to hear this part because it's, uh, I just want to make it perfectly clear, the kinds of triggers that I mean that are causing so much psychological distress. What kinds of manifestations that create this particular invalidating environment for about 50 percent of the country before I go into principles and tools as solutions. As I've already said, there is this overwhelming and unrelenting nature of the news and a president that loves to be a part of it. The seemingly unending set of disruptive decisions and policies, the attacks on one standard or institution or constitutional principle after another, the racism through it all, the anti-science bias through it all, too much to keep up with, too much to think about and too much to respond to. The tweet storms themselves are a central part of this. The day in and day out pursuit of policies and statements motivated by racism and by discrimination against black and brown and immigrants uh, is by a story unto itself that just keeps being overwhelming. So now, here's a list of 20 events in the past four years that frighten the 50% or beyond, and frighten other parts of the world. Any 20 that I list could be replaced by another 20, by 100, or by 1,000. I apologize in advance if you don't want to hear them. Like I said, I've given you a way out already. But you also might not want to hear them because you don't agree with me, or because uh, you wish I had covered other things, uh, etc. So here we go. Number one. Birtherism. Years before Trump ran for office, he was on his campaign to allege and prove that Barack Obama was not born in the United States, and therefore could not be president. It was a stunning and racist claim backed up by nothing but lies, as it turns out. His campaign, as he did it, was serious in its tone, but it was hard to take him seriously until his fanaticism Uh, made it grow into an issue. Whether he believed it himself was always in question, and it's been the case now that way with many things that he says outrageous things about. Number two, when running against Clinton, he spoke repeatedly and directly to Vladimir Putin, asking for his help even on television in locating incriminating, incriminating emails on his opponent. Number three, during his campaign for president, a recording was released in which he told someone that he liked to quote, grab women by the pussy and kiss them. Number four, as his presidency began, he tried to ban Muslims from entering the United States. And by building a wall at the same time between the United States and Mexico, he called Mexicans who crossed the border rapists and, and murderers and drug dealers. Number five, he mocked a journalist in public with a physical disability. He insulted a federal judge because of his Mexican heritage. He insulted women in general several times. Number six, soon after he became president, in his usual insistence that people around him express their admiration and loyalty to him, he staged a cabinet meeting on television in which each person around the table made a prepared statement of an over-the-top form of praise toward him. I Think Jim Mattis was the only one who didn't go with that, the person who was Secretary of Defense at the time. Number seven, over the first three years of his presidency, he has fired and lost an unbelievable number of people in the highest posts around his administration, unprecedented, like a nonstop turnstile. Number eight, more specifically, The pattern appears that he fires or loses those with high levels of experience and expertise, those willing to provide opinions that might differ from his own, and replace them with people whose most prominent characteristic is that they are loyal to him. They agree with him that he is brilliant and even perfect, or at least they say so. Number nine, he has repeatedly derided immigrants, black and brown-skinned people, Mexicans, Central Americans, and at one point commented on those, um, quote, black and brown people coming from shithole countries. The quote part is shithole countries. Where, when there was a Ku Klux Klan style rally in Virginia of white supremacists and fights broke out between the demonstrators and people peacefully protesting against them, Trump said that there were good people on both sides. Number 10 is admiration, support, and protection for Vladimir Putin uh, has been incredibly troubling and consistent for many and goes along with a more general fondness for authoritarian leaders who harshly put down any dissent. Number 11, he has repeatedly attacked the media, the Justice Department, the FBI, the intelligence community in general, the rule of law, and the powers of Congress that are specifically written into our Constitution to allow them uh, to um, practice oversight over other branches of government and to um, protect against the emergence of tyranny in our country. Number 12, in interviews, it has always been troubling, if not ludicrous, to hear that Trump considers himself a stable genius, as he put it, that he has no regrets, that he has never done anything wrong, that there is nothing he has ever done that requires an apology, and that he can't think of anyone in his life in one interview other than himself who he would regard as a hero or role model. I just wanna remind you what I said before. I've gotten through 12 of these 20. Obviously, I have my bias, and they have the, the, my bias creates how I write these and say them. But remember that nearly every one of these looked at from the point of view of people in his base. They would look at and have a completely different way of talking about it. Um, and, and, And in many ways, understandable because they see him as standing up against other things for them. Number 13, he has supported policies that place children in cages and separated families at the border with Mexico. Number 14, he unilaterally pulled the United States out of the International Climate Change Agreement and out of the nuclear treaty with Iran, both quickly in his administration, um, single-handedly moving the world closer to human extinction, either through climate change or nuclear war. He has issued dozens of executive orders, which often seem motivated by a devotion to undoing anything done by Barack Obama, to roll back protections of clean air, drinkable water, and other environmental standards in favor of, of, of uh, profit making for businesses. Number 16, he has not stopped tack- attacking Obamacare, ending the necessity of insurance coverage for uh, pre existing conditions if he could, while for Election purposes at his rallies, even recently, claiming that he's going to be the champion of saving insurance for pre existing conditions. Number 17, he has, in order to deliver retribution for John McCain's vote to preserve Obamacare, openly attacked the integrity of McCain, a military hero and prisoner of war in Vietnam, and, and of a Gold Star family parents of those who were killed in the line of duty for our country. Number 18, to the degree that these kinds of episodes are forms of invalidation of a large segment of our country, they would not be so successfully and pervasively invalidating if those around him in the administration and those in the United States Senate who have the power to convict him when he was impeached were to have spoken up even now and then to hold him accountable for some of his disturbing episodes and decisions by abdicating that responsibility, by publicly supporting him and letting him off the hook over and over again. All in the service of their own political goals and survival, he has not been held in check or even fact-checked by other decision-makers in power. It's a bit like a family in which there's an incestuous relationship going on and everyone agrees to look the other way and to deny it if it comes up. It's so inconvenient. Because Mitch McConnell is in such a key position of all, his failure to hold the president accountable positions him as one of the most important people contributing to the pervasively invalidating environment. Number 19, not only are these types of presidential behaviors and the behaviors of the supportive cast of characters around him, contributors to the invalidating fabric of our country, but the polarization between us as citizens, citizens leaving Trump aside from the discussion itself has to be frightening and disturbing and invalidating in different ways to people on both sides. The chasm has never felt worse than this in my lifetime, and the extremity of it contributes to fear and catastrophic thinking that has so many in its grip. Number 20, and to bring one incident in from the past week, the president has been taking pains in the past few days to state that there is no real need to worry about a pandemic with the coronavirus, which kills about 2% of those who contract it, which is about 20 times as much as, is, as, as, flu, as the typical flu kills, and might be spreading through the country as we speak, probably is, certainly that's the position of the experts in the country, um, which means to me, or just think about this from Trump's point of view, how frightening it must be that with the coronavirus, this is a force affecting his political, possibly his political future. The stock market, everything he holds dear, his expertise, his being a champion, it it's the smallest living thing in the world. And it doesn't care about politics It doesn't care what people think. It doesn't care where people are coming from. It's just one of those facts of life that's really difficult. And it must be very hard for him because all of his usual practices, his techniques, his way of influencing and getting his way, it's really hard to do that when this is the problem. I'm now inspired to bring a poem up. I don't usually do this. But while I was writing these things, thinking about these things these past two, three, four weeks, you know, a poem came to mind. And I'm not someone who reads a ton of poetry, but um, it turns out this is a poem that's invoked a lot during the Trump era and during other eras like this when people are frightened. It was written in 1919 after World War I by William Butler Yeats. It's called The Second Coming. And it has been, turns out it was uh searched um some statistic about during 2016 even during the trump election uh and and especially right after it was searched just way more frequently than it had ever been searched before in the last 30 40 years so here it is the second coming this is really just because the imagery i think is more of an artist's poet's point of view of the kind of imagery that I think I'm talking about in such more of a prosaic way. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood-dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out. When a vast image of spiritus mundi, troubles my sight. Somewhere in the sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, But now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. Now, I hope you might, some of you find, having that biosocial theory with a historical look at the causes and conditions of behavior and the causes and conditions of polarization and the causes and conditions of the rise of Donald Trump, put it in a context that makes it less personalized, that makes it less mm, tempting to blame one person, because I think it really helps to tune, turn down affect a bit. Um, Now I want to move on from this biosocial theory to what it does in DBT next and I think it's even more helpful now than going over the biosocial theory as having implications for certain directions to move in this era. Rather than read it, let me tell you about this. Those of you who know a lot about DBT know about this. Those of you who know nothing about DBT, I hope you understand this. I hope I'll make it understandable. Those of you who know a little probably pretty much get this. The biosocial theory is a theory that it's a transaction between two forces, you might say, or two positions with each other in interaction with each other in transaction with each other, because they affect each other, over time is the context out of which problematic behaviors and dysregulated emotions emerge. It's a basic idea in DBT, is that this back and forth between one's personal vulnerability, which is one's biology, and one's environment, especially the invalidating features of that environment, that these shape each other over time through interaction after interaction, until you end up with more and more dysregulation out of the vulnerability, and usually a more and more invalidating environment. So I've been describing that there's a certain kind of vulnerability among people who uh, have felt uh, bad about Trump, and they're vulnerable to all these emotions and thoughts and urges and things that I went over last time. All right, so you've got part of the picture. Here's the pattern of behavior that's a problem. Here's the large theory about that it grew out of this dynamic transaction between the Trump era and the uh, individuals that are suffering. And the individuals that are suffering act in such a way that makes the Trump environment worse, and the Trump environment acts in a way that makes the individuals worse. Now, the next point, and that's what this next part's about. In that context, if you're an individual in that context, what starts to happen over time, if you're exposed to that circumstance, is that you start to develop internal polarities, tendencies towards extremes in your own behavioral patterns in your own mind, in your own experience of emotions, in your own decisions about what to do, you start to get set up inside yourself, a tendency to either go all the way to the right or all the way to the left. And I don't mean politically. I just mean all the way to one extreme or all the way to another extreme, for instance. And these are called, in DBT, they're called dialectical dilemmas because they are polarities that aren't synthesized into a middle path. So an example, not from the current era, though it could come from the current era, but an, a perfect example of what I mean by this is that you have somebody that, because of their history or their biology, they have a high level of emotional sensitivity and reactivity. It kind of like can't stand it emotions are terrible and they get flowing and that person might heal or be learned to cope with that except that they find themselves for a period of time in a pervasively invalidating environment, an environment with somebody or with people who have no interest or knowledge or awareness of the kind of experience this person's going through and therefore they say stupid things to them. They say hurtful things, they say punitive things, they say pathologizing things, they say dismissive things. And it really just more and more cultivates this larger and larger problem that turns out to be then disturbed behavioral patterns as a way of coping. But now what happens inside that individual's behavior and inside that person's experience is that inside that person, They now, even if they leave that environment, which is so triggering, they carry within themselves a polarity. And that polarity is between the tendency in oneself to become more emotionally sensitive, reactive, and vulnerable on the one hand, or to flip over to the other polarity, which is to Mm. invalidate oneself, to internalize, in a way, what happened with the environment, and now it's set up inside oneself as if you can see a battle going on, and it's very hard to find the middle ground. What would the middle ground be? The middle ground would be that two different things. Instead of experiencing emotions in a painfully vulnerable way that you can't control and you can't do anything about it, you learn to modulate those emotions. So you can have sensitive emotions, reactive emotions, intense emotions, and you learn things to do to be able to move in on yourself and regulate those better. And coming from the other extreme where there's a tendency to invalidate yourself, you learn to validate yourself. You validate yourself that you have intense emotions, strong reactions to people, Rather than blaming yourself, and between these two directions, into the middle, the direction of modulating emotions and the direction of validating yourself, this creates a middle a middle ground where you become more and more effective. Now, let's take this whole concept into what I'm talking about now. I, I w- I've given some thought to what kind of polarizations have been set up inside people, people I know to some degree myself, and people who are in this era, and who especially feel uh, traumatized, scared, anxious, worried, angry, powerless, with respect to the Trump administration and the current direction of things in the country. What kind of polarities have been set up inside the self? And I've come up with four of them that I think have happened. For people. So I want to go over those. One. One is a polarity inside the self, well I'll call it with respect to the level of exposure that a person has to the kind of um, chaos and noise that's going on. So one side of the polarity is the tendency to overexpose. So the tendency of some people to in a way become addicted to the news and all things political. Wake up in the morning, find out what's happened. Check in in the middle of the day, watch the news later, read something, read your favorite stuff. And typically people gravitating towards the part of the news or the voice within the news that they like to hear. And that becomes a kind of like an obsession or an addiction to, uh, to be always exposed to the news. You don't get much of a break. And, and also exposure inside oneself to be swimming among um, and drowning sometimes among the various emotions that are set off. I mean, I know I've had a lot of them in the last few days with the arrival on the world stage of the coronavirus and then seeing how the Trump administration and Trump himself um, have been commenting on it and just feeling like, oh my God, are you kidding me? Is this a lack of interest in science and facts and objectivity going to just go get going again here? And of course it is. Why wouldn't it? This is a, absolutely how everything's been dealt with, but I get upset, I get frightened, more frightened uh, about it and angry about it. So I have a choice. How much do I stay immersed in all the news in a non-stop way, as opposed to checking in now and then, how much do I stay immersed in my emotions rather than dipping out of them and deliberately doing other things that'll sort of have different types of emotions and different perspective. And then there's the um, the thoughts and fears. Um, one can overexpose to the fearful thoughts that are going on, the angry thoughts that are going on. You know, And and so on the other hand, so, the other hand, the other poll, if that's one poll, is to overexpose to these things externally and internally. There's the poll the, uh, that has to do with underexposure. So sometimes people will altogether avoid the news and all things political, all conversations political, doesn't, don't want to know what's going on. Suppress and block politically related emotions and to dismiss thoughts about the dangers that could come from this era, the realistic dangers, not just the catastrophic ones. So there is, on the one hand, the people who overexpose, they kind of dip themselves in boiling oil, (laughs) and then there's the people who pretend it doesn't exist, and who just want to stay away from it, and it's understandable. The middle path between this polarity that I think has developed for a lot of people would be to judiciously expose yourself to the news, so that you have some awareness of what's going on and that you try to find those news um, organs that you think are representing things as objectively as possible, uh, to allow time in between exposure to the news, to digest what it's learned, and to stay focused on other things in life that are important. Um, Unless you are jumping all the way in as an activist, and then you need to stay focused all the time. But most of us are not in that position. And to allow yourself to feel politically related emotions without um, uh, having them take over our minds and our lives so that everything turns into a discussion about that or a set of thoughts about that sort of like, how do you dip into this and dip out of it and dip into that and dip out of it? I think that is a skillful thing to do. I think it's a middle path that requires repeatedly gaining balance. And in the next two podcasts, I'll be talking about various ways to to concretely do some of these things. What's another polarity that I think people are having? It's with respect to the level of engagement in doing anything or in talking with people about it, with political phenomenon. And I think the polarization is between those who catastrophize and those who minimize. And it's sort of parallel to the one I just went over. So the tendency to over-engage is to dive into all available political conversations, to turn other conversations into political conversations, to disrupt uh, situations uh, by bringing in political opinions, uh, to jump into antagonistic positions when you're encountering some degree of disagreement it's really to be like going along with the tendency to overexpose it's now to actually take it a step further and be over engaged all the time in a way that actually leads to burnout and not necessarily effective strategies for change and then there's the tendency on the other hand to under engage to avoid or escape from all political conversations or events to walk on eggshells around other people uh, that you know think differently than you do, uh, to sit on your hands when there's options arising that you could do something, you could join in something that would, be, would advance the cause even locally for yourself in, 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 in alignment with your position, but actually you just you just disengage, disengage, disengage. What's the middle path? To find ways to engage in action, ways to engage in conversation that are within your limits and that are aligned with your goals and your passions, neither overdoing it nor underdoing it. Third polarity, with respect to blame. there is Blame is a big part of what's going on across the country. So the tendency on the one hand of finding positions of blaming other people, whether it be the other side in general, all people on the left, all people on the right, I mean, or particular people, oversimplifying explanations, taking things out of context, because it's, it's ju- 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 juicier, it's more effective in the moment as a rhetorical tool, and the respond and, and, and oversimplifying explanations in such a way that, um, that you're taking black and white positions. This is, a, this is one direction to go. And I think, you know, I've been there. I've been in most of these places. That's why I'm talking about them, I think, in the way that I am. And then the other side, on the opposite side of finding people and things to blame all the time, is to um, absolve everybody of any responsibility for the mess that we're in. Just sort of like block that out. Whereas, in fact, the middle path, would be to be realistic and thoughtful and objective in assigning responsibility to various parties, partial responsibility, without using black and white blamefulness as a central position. So remember that anybody who does anything that is a problematic behavior in the service of what you don't like to see in the country, anybody who does anything, they're doing that in a context that Um, supported them to do it or reinforced them for doing it or taught them to do it or prompted them to do it. So there's always, always another level, not necessarily to let people off the hook, but to explain things without just pure oversimplified black and white types of blaming, which I think really furthers the polarization again and again. And finally, a polarization inside with respect to one's personal experience of empowerment or not. And so one tendency is to assume a stance that assigns enormous power to oneself, as if one could heroically take on a position, a situation and bring about huge changes, again, by heroic efforts and experience oneself as I am an action hero, I am Donald Trump, uh, at one of his rallies, and I'm going to do this, and there, there. Sometimes people swell up with this on either side of this battle, um, and then there's the tendency that I think is more typical on the other side, uh, the tendency to experience oneself as having no power, as having no influence, as feeling that there's no words and no actions you can take that actually would have an impact. What's the middle path between these in terms of? empowerment, I'd say it's something like this, to recognize that the human community and the American electorate in particular is all people, all of us are absolutely, deeply, sometimes not obviously, interconnected. And that even small moves are going to affect other people. They're going to have ripple effects, especially the people that you're with, even just them seeing what you say how you feel, what your facial expression is, that you will make a difference, whether locally or beyond locally. And then you can settle on goals and actions that might make a difference, and and not knowing in advance what it would do. It's really the um, teaching of Thich Nhat Hanh as a socially engaged Buddhist from the time he was very young, working toward a more peaceful world, the way he wrote this book so elegantly, called Peace Is Every Step that is about, maybe you don't think that you have the power to bring about world peace um, in a world that's warring, Um, but actually every step you take, and if you take it peacefully, it will have ripple effects in yourself and beyond yourself, whether it's in one other person or a whole community of people. And so there is this possibility, but it gets eliminated. All of these middle paths get eliminated by finding oneself pushed or gravitating to these extremes. So looking for a middle path, and it's gonna be a theme in the, in the on and off in the next two podcasts, because I think it's an, an important theme, is how to find yourself in a position where you're on steady ground, standing in the middle of polarizations and actually enact things that you think make sense and, and, and stop being paralyzed or totally polarized. And looking for the wisdom on the other side, Uh, not in order to let people off the hook, but in order to have a more complex, a more realistic, a more coherent, and a more compelling view of the reality that's going on around us. So that's it for today. It sets the stage for the next step where I'm going to talk finally, because I mentioned I would. I thought I would this week, but I couldn't get to it. Talk about the principles of dbt and how they directly apply to this situation and coping with it effectively whether you're trying to tolerate it change your emotional response to it or whether you're trying to solve the political problem um, i think there's a lot to, that comes from dbt principles and some of the dbt protocols and then f- the final week will undoubtedly just be going through one type of skill after another that could be helpful at this in this situation so Have a good week, everybody. Be well. And anybody who tunes in, I'll be on uh, next Thursday night. And uh, please email me with feedback. I take it very seriously. It means a lot to me to hear from you. Okay. Bye.